Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, I don't know if you're still joining me from your sofa, but you have been sort of palely loitering, haven't you? You've been a bit <laughs> under the weather and comforted, as I understand it, by Elizabeth von Arnim. Yes, I have. I had a little winter bog, so I was palely loitering on the sofa and I read Elizabeth von Arnim's All the Dogs of My Life. Have you read it? I have not. Should I? Oh, it's so it's so wonderful. I mean, the title alone is entrancing me. I haven't read anything else of hers and now I'm about to try and read a lot more. I was kind of aware of her as a name. Apart, it's just it's very direct voice. I was trying to work out when she wrote it. I think she wrote it maybe in the 30s. It's a very direct voice. She's talking right at you. It's very funny and sort of feels very honest. And it's just, it's absolutely delightful. And it's brilliant because, you know, it's about the dog she's had throughout her life. And she keeps saying, if this were an autobiography, I'd tell you about the suitors that I was running away from at this point. <laughs> and, you know, X and Y and Z and P and Q. Then she goes, but it's not, this is about the dogs. So I don't need to tell you about that. So let me tell you about the dogs. And it's very... So it's teasing, you mean? Yes. Or does, does she let slip little bits of... Oh, no, she tells you quite a the... lot. Right. Yeah, she, she tells you quite a lot. And she tells you how the dogs react to the suitors and, you know, that sort of thing. And it's very nice because... And you hear about her children, who she's obviously devoted to, but she's not spending her time going, oh, I'm so devoted to my children. But, you know, that comes through. All through the lens of the mutt, as it were. <laughs> yes. And they're quite... They're very characterful mutts as you put it as you quite rudely put it Alex I don't think of that as rude I love <laughs> a mutt maybe not yeah no we do love a mutt it's highly recommended it's really delightful and as I say it's such a it's such a clear voice so it's nearly 100 years ago and it's like she's just sitting you down with a cup of coffee and going let me tell you about my dogs and you learn about lots of other things along the way it sounds perfect sick bed slash sofa reading I must mm. say there is news of another autobiography who knows whether it will include dogs or whatever else, but Barbara Streisand. Yes. Now, I may be more excited by this than other people because I, Lucy, I, to share, to bring you into my world, mm -hmm. I processed back down the aisle, as it were, to Barbara Streisand's Don't Rain on My Parade. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How wonderful. She was there, I presume, singing it for oh, you she, live. Yes, she was. Absolutely so. <laughs> She'll do anything for you, Barbara. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so she is writing an autobiography, I believe it is to, or has written it presumably, to be published this November, I think. Yes, this autumn. Yeah, Do you yeah. think this will challenge the sales figures of Prince Harry or possibly not even Barbara could do that? But are you looking forward to it? I'm completely looking forward to it because you imagine that it will be really smart and interesting and you know all of those things and she's got a kind of unique place hasn't she she's kind of untouchable with great reason as it were I mean I don't know why but I, I feel like this is going to be a great book it's like when you hear that Dolly Parton's doing something and you think oh great yes exactly so and do you think you'd be more or less likely but this I'm doing the optician on the book review now more yeah. or less likely to buy Barbara Streisand's autobiography or Gillian Anderson's sort of inspired by Nancy Friday compendium of women's sex secrets. I'm going for Babs. <laughs> I thought you might. Uh, we'll move on quickly from that. Tell us what's in the paper this week. It's before I get fired for bringing the TLS into tabloid territory. Tell us what is in the paper. Well, there's a very interesting sort of link up 
this week. The lead is by Mark Mazower, a historian, reviewing a book by William St. Clair, who died in 2021, I think. And the book is called Who Saved the Parthenon? And it's about the preservation, sort of and otherwise, of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. The subtitle is A New History of the Acropolis Before, During and After the Greek Revolution. And William Sinclair, who we're going to talk about later, actually, with Lucasta Miller, was a scholar. He was, in fact, a, a Whitehall Mandarin. Such a wonderful phrase. I'd love to be a Whitehall Mandarin. <laughs> I think I probably wouldn't in terms of having the job, which sounds very stressful. But I'd love to just say, yes, I'm a Whitehall Mandarin. What are you? I think you probably can just say it. Lucy. But it would be a fib. anyone to challenge you. But also a great scholar of the Romantic period and of Greece. And he's talking about what happened to the Elgin or the Parthenon marbles. And he wrote, I think, three books about it, or he revised it three times. I'm not sure. And let's just say he changed his mind. Shall I tell you the headline of the piece, which might give it away a little bit? The headline of the piece is Give Them Back! Exclamation mark. So, you know, that might give you an idea. I would say that gives us a fairly strong hint, but, you know, it's also rather grab your attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, without further ado. So coming up on this week's show, Lucasta Miller gives us a glimpse into the world of the 19th century home-compiled anthologies through a fascinating private collection. And Richard Norton Taylor explores the labyrinthine and alarming world of spyware in which both individuals and governments are targeted without their knowledge and the efforts of dedicated journalists and technology experts to uncover it. But first, the collections that people make for their own pleasure always yield fascinating insights, not only to their personalities, but to the enthusiasms and obsessions of the time. In the first half of the 19th century, many women of the middle classes developed the pastime of copying their favourite poetry into books and albums that they annotated and illustrated, and sometimes even padlocked. The scholar William St. Clair, whose book on the Acropolis is reviewed in our lead piece this week, collected around 100 such albums and passed them to Lucasta Miller, in whose care they were until recently, when they went to the special collections of University College London. Lucasta joins us now to tell us a little bit more about them. Lucasta, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So to begin with, can you tell us how these extraordinary artefacts came to be not only in your possession, but in fact, in your sitting room? Well, I mean, William was a sort of, you know, incorrigible collector of books, and he basically didn't have enough room for all of these in his flat. And so I don't know about sort of 10 or 12 years ago, he asked me whether I'd have space for them and whether I'd look after them. And one of the reasons why he asked me is that he knew that I was working on the poet Letitia Landon, who was extremely well known in this sort of strange period of the 1820s and 30s, the period in which most of these albums were made, and many of them contain poems by Letitia Landon. So, you know, for me to have them was, you know, a great pleasure. It was like having sort of a load of visitors <laughs> staying with me, friendly visitors. But it also was, you know, interesting in terms of my own research. It must have been because you're actually seeing fans, as it were, of Letitia Landon, copying out her work, possibly commenting on it. You could see how popular it is. That's right. Um, and I was quite surprised by some of the poems that I found in the albums. I mean, there's one by a young lady, I mean, the album owned by a young lady, and she copies out a very, very early poem by Letitia Landon called When Should Lovers Breathe Their Vows, which was published before anybody knew who she was. It was published under these mysterious initials, L-E-L. -E -L. 
in an ephemeral poetry column in the Literary Gazette. And at this very early stage of Letitia Landon's career, she was constructing herself in a rather sort of racy, erotic and very romantic way. And it's actually quite a surprise to find this highly respectable, apparently young lady copying out this poem. Another poem that I found intriguing was one of the very, very few albums kept by men. Copies out a poem by Letitia Landon called Love's Last Lesson, which is written in this incredibly sort of bitter female voice. It's about a breakup in the voice of a woman who's been dumped by her lover. And I found it quite intriguing, um, given the rage against the man expressed in the poem, that a man had chosen to copy this out. Maybe he had been that kind of lover and he was sort of self-reproving or something. That doesn't sound very likely, actually. That's not the way way that people behave. (laughs) Who knows? And I think that these books, they bring up all sorts of mysterious questions and about, you know, why did people choose these poems? What did these poems mean to them? I mean, sometimes you get, you know, clearly the album is being used um, possibly as a sort of forum for flirtation. You know, there's one in which somebody writes, um, makes up a little poem about, wouldst thou on me bestow thy love, true heart's ease to me send, to thee I swear I'll ever prove thy lover, brother, friend. So you've obviously got this you know, young man writing this in a young lady's album. So they're kind of covert means of communication. Yes, because they're very public. And yes, possibly they're also a bit covert. They are, as you know, we said this kind of fascinating snapshot into who was really sort of hot at the time. And it's often very different. As we know, posterity sees things completely differently. And as you mentioned, Letitia Landon, this great hit of the moment, but also Byron, I think, comes up a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of Byron. And these albums, I mean, I think the earliest is about 1819 and the latest about 1853. And you can see that Byromania sort of goes on and on and on, certainly among these young women. And we've got to think, for example, about the young Bronte sisters, um, who were also completely sort of smitten by Byron. You do see quite a sort of complicated attitude sometimes. I mean, it's as if, I mean, one poem by Byron that they're very aware of is Fare Thee Well, the poem that he wrote supposedly um, after he'd split up from his wife. And, you know, there are lots of replies to this poem as if the readers themselves feel like they are the spurned wife. You said, I think, at one point that one of the um, young women has written Lord Byron in capitals backwards at the top. (laughs) It just reminds me, you know, I hope I'm not alone in this, but it's like what you used to write in your jotter, you know, when you were in a boring lesson. Do you do doodles in the name of the boy that you fancy at the point? Oh, well, exactly. And, you know, it's such a pity I haven't got them all here because I would have looked through them again. But I do remember there's one about, you know, a girl at Miss So-and-so's school and, you know, and her relationship with a boy at Mr. So-and-so's school. Yes, it really is teenage stuff that we can recognise today. And were they predominantly teenagers? The sort of profile of people who used to compile these books we've sort of got that it's kind of a middle class thing it's as you said very very few men but age-wise did it tend to be younger women yes definitely I think they're all started by younger women and some of them are inscribed as gifts from say the girl's mother saying you know I hope you will put this book to profit or something (laughs) oh dear (laughs) 
But what's interesting is that people keep them throughout their lives. So the young woman who wrote out the very erotic poem by Letitia Landon about what's the best time for an assignation, later on you can see that she's obviously married and has had a family and the book has and she's carried on I think for some years adding poems but then later on the book has been repurposed as a scrapbook by a child and so you get this sort of very Victorian picture taken from an advert I think for Fitch's firelighters you think about all that sort of buried passion and it's stuck on top of these passionate poems by L.E.L. that this album keeper was, you know, enthralled by when she was, you know, in her late teens, perhaps, or early 20s. So people really kind of personalised them. They, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of sort of what they look like. They're very sort of homemade in that kind of way, are they? Yes. I mean, the very earliest, I think, I mean, looks like an exercise book. I mean, it really is the size and shape of a school exercise book with cardboard, not completely floppy covers, but these sort of marbled paper cardboard covers, the size of a small school exercise book. Later on, when this fashion became more and more popular, you know, sort of book binders and, you know, book producers really sort of capitalised on it and would produce ready-made volumes, you know, bound. Some of the poshest ones are bound in sort of tooled Morocco, other ones are bound in cloth. I mean, even by 1828, somewhere a very sort of sneery, satirical little poem, which sort of talks about the albums like this. Sweet album hail, Morocco green or jet, the scrawny minstrel's scrawl-devouring pet, well-poured preserver of pellucid trash. On thy smooth leaves, what tickling frenzies flash, or thumbed by blues, or filled by Lady Lamb, Caroline Lamb, a rhyme-stuffed bundle of pedantic sham. Gosh, well, there you go. That's the disapproving side. So that was like a male satirist's view of these in 1828. So Byron got there and Letitia Landon got there and they knew about Lady Caroline Lamb. But I think you say in terms of, and I think is this is why William St. Clair was interested in them, isn't it? Because he wrote the book about the reading habits and the reading nation of the 19th century. But the people that we think of, as Alex was saying earlier, of the, you know, the romantics, there's no Shelley or anyone else like that, is there? Is that right? No, there's no Shelley, no Keats. And this just sort of shows, I mean, or just, you know, confirms how really small their circulation was in those um, decades after their deaths at the beginning of the 1820s. I mean, I, having worked on Keats, I'm often asked, you know, what would have happened had Keats lived? And it's an interesting question about what happened to the publishing world in terms of poetry. It in fact becomes, you know, hyper-commercialised and commodified. And Poets like Letitia Landon are writing in this sort of frenetic capitalist marketplace, which would not have been at all conducive to Keats's genius. And I sort of feel, well, had he lived, had he married Fanny Braun, had he had to support a family, you know, he just, you know, would not have been able to carry on being Keats and do that by writing poetry. On the other hand, it's interesting to see how, although Letitia Landon is often sort of mocked as this, as I said, commercialised writer who's popular among these, you know, middle class ladies, we can really feel with these albums that she wasn't necessarily received like that by her readers, that she really did have a sort of authentic meaning, like they could sort of live through their, their fantasies through her. And we can certainly see that, I mean, 
in addition to in these albums, in the Bronte sisters, who as teenagers, you know, copied out poetry by Letitia Landon and absorbed it without that sort of cynical detachment. And I'm very interested in looking at the complexities of Letitia Landon's voice and the play between, you know, authenticity and artifice. I think you can feel there's a sort of often slightly naive authenticity to these albums. Which is actually easy to mock. I mean, I find that, as you're saying, that people were sneering at, you know, that was very popular with the kind of middle-class ladies. I think that's still true. That's been true the whole way through, hasn't it? People are still <laughs> sneering about things, that, especially literature that, you know, middle-class or middle-aged ladies like or teenagers. That's still the case. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been a... I mean, certainly in the case of Letitia Landon, when I came to work on her, I, you know, there wasn't really that much about her. I mean, you still can't easily buy a collection of her poetry. And yeah, I think the literary marketplace, as it were, today, you know, does have a sort of complicated attitude towards, still towards women writers. I'm very interested in their preservation, these albums. You mentioned that William Sinclair got them from secondhand dealers, but they were clearly things that were meant to be preserved, that people put in their collections and libraries of books rather than just sort of throw away kind of diaries. They were commonplace books that were meant to have a place on the shelves. Yes, I mean, you know, although there is one poem in one of them to a lady with an almanac, and it says, unlike this book, receive a better fate, be blessed through life and never out of date. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that they are kept by people, but they're probably forgotten on shelves for mm. possibly a lifetime after the writers have possibly been distracted by their adult lives. I think that, you know, the idea of them being sort of kept in public rooms, in sort of, you know, on the sitting room, on the drawing room table, you'll get your friends to add things to them, makes them quite interesting. And they certainly sort of make you think about the romantic idea of the sort of lone genius. And this certainly breaks that down because it's really a sort of often a very collaborative form of constructing a poetic anthology. And the collection that you looked after, the books had pencil annotations and inscriptions and things from William Sinclair himself, didn't they? Oh, yes, some of them just on the flyleaf. You know, he was so punctilious, he'd make a note of sort of where he bought it, when he bought it, possibly what the name of the album keeper was. Occasionally he'd look at the watermark on the paper to double check the date. And so, you know, there was a sort of palimpsestic effect, the way that, you know, these albums were collections of poems and prose put together by these women in the 19th century and their friends. And then William was collecting the albums himself and adding his own sort of commentary as a scholar. This is a sort of basis for a novel by Alan Hollinghurst, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But Good it idea. just reads like that kind of the layers and layers of collection and attachment by people through this just sounds so fascinating. I wondered, Lucasta, how you felt when you said goodbye to them and what kind of companionship they'd given you in the corner of your sitting room. Well, they had. I felt incredibly fond of them. Mm. I think there was something about the fact that the authors are so anonymous that was somehow particularly poignant and moving about seeing these forgotten women's handwriting. I mean, in a sense, to me, just as moving as, you know, going into a a library and seeing an unpublished manuscript by a great writer such as Charlotte Bronte. 
I found there was something, you know, the way that books can have that almost sort of necromantic effect and make you feel that you're, you know, connecting with the dead. Yes, yeah, exactly. And can you tell us a bit about William Sinclair himself? I was struck by, as I say, that our lead piece this week by Mark Mazower is a, is a review of his, um, well, I think the third edition of his book about the Acropolis, in which he does a kind of amazing revision of his earlier work and thought. And he wrote about all sorts of things, isn't he? And Mark Mazower called him a magnificent example of an almost extinct breed, the independent scholar. Well, absolutely. I mean, William really believed in the Republic of Letters in this, you know, in one sense idealistic, in another sense very sort of practical way. He was so um, incredibly well informed. He was so well read, particularly in the 19th century. I mean, you know, I remember having a long conversation with him at a, a TLS party about Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel, The Last Days of Pompeii, which I was reading because I was, you know, researching the 1820s and 30s. But, you know, William had just read it. Yeah. But I don't want anyone to get the idea that he was this sort of dusty academic because he had an amazingly lively sense of humour. You know, one of the funniest stories he ever told me, which is sort of slightly connected because it's about diaries. He told me about how once he, as a young man, he suddenly realised his teenage diaries that were just so embarrassing. He was just going to have to get rid of them. So he went out into the countryside from Edinburgh and he tossed them into a loch and he thought, there they are, consigned to a watery grave. Unfortunately, they floated and were washed up and were picked up by some people oh, no. after a walk. Who read them, presumably. Yeah, well, in his very punctilious <laughs> way, he put his own address inside. Oh, so no. these volumes were returned to his parents, the very, very last oh. people that he ever wanted to read them. And so, you know, he had that incredible sense of fun and humour and could laugh at himself in a really charming way. You see, I told you this whole thing was a novel. Yeah, it is. It is. Even more so, because that's a brilliantly romantic gesture to throw them in a loch. Yes. I mean, you know, he definitely did have a sort of romantic side to him. I mean, you know, his attraction to the romantics with a capital R and the grand gesture. I can, yeah, I can definitely see that. Well, I'm very glad these didn't go into a watery loch. This collection didn't. It's gone somewhere very, very much safer, even than your own sitting room, Lucasta. That's right. I think they'll be beautifully conserved and looked after and also available to scholars who want to find out more about the, you know, the reading patterns of 19th century women. I wanted to ask just um, one more thing that you mentioned about the kind of capitalist nature of the commercialised nature of them, I suppose. Mm. There's a fascinating thing that you say. They also, after a while, the, the publishers realised that people were doing this and started doing pre-filled ones that you could sort of buy for presents, were they? Yes. Well, these were called the annuals. They were, to say, pre-filled ones, rather sort of underestimates what the annuals were. These were anthologies, often, you know, very, very high-end, you know, beautifully bound. I mean, in fact, in, in Middlemarch, you know, Rosamond Vincy has one of these annuals. Ah, we know what that means then. You know, and so, you know, George Eliot is incredibly scathing of these things. But mm. actually, in the early days, the publishers were able, you know, they offered fat fees and, you you know, people like Walter Scott, you know, I think even Wordsworth contributed to some of the early ones. Um, you know, they had engravings of pictures by Turner. So they would write original works for them? 
Yes, yes. I see. And, and in the end, okay. Letitia Landon ended up taking on the so-called editorship Gosh. of one called Fisher's Drawing Room Scrapbook. And in fact, she wrote the entire poetic content for this. They were called annuals because they, to begin with, they would come out sort of at Christmas time, intended as a Christmas or, or New Year's gift. Eventually they were, you know, they tried bringing out an Easter one. They, you know, there were all sorts of different variations on the theme, the most ludicrous of which was a minute one. Um, this sort of Lilliputian, tiny, tiny little book that you had to read with a magnifying glass. It's about the size of a thumbnail. And Letitia Landon also wrote the entire poetic content for that one, which was literally, her poetry was literally invisible to the naked eye. She was a woman poet whose voice was thwarted, not because she couldn't publish, but because she did. Mm-hmm. It's completely fascinating. Are they available for anyone to view at UCL or do you need to be a scholar and have a proper ticket? Well, I don't know. I think you'd have to get in touch with um, special collections. They may still be in the process of being conserved. Yeah, okay. They sound like a wonderful thing. And thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about them, Lucasta. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on the show, we shed some light on the labyrinthine world of spyware, its egregious abuses and its effect on international relations and diplomacy. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Alex Clark. Spying on individuals, organisations and countries by intercepting their communications is nothing new. It's been at the heart of intelligence gathering for decades, if not centuries. But in recent years, it's become increasingly sophisticated and therefore hard to detect. Two new books illuminate the complex world of spyware, cyber attacks, phone hacking, data embassies and much more besides. Security expert Richard Norton-Taylor has reviewed them in this week's paper and joins us now to shed some light on this 
constantly shifting and treacherous territory. Richard, many thanks for bringing your expertise to bear. Pleasure, pleasure. In a world where we've all sort of been looking up to the skies to watch a Chinese spy balloon. So I mean, this is very much in people's minds. That actually seems strangely sort of old fashioned compared to the territory covered by these two books. Well, absolutely, because the Chinese spy balloon, one thing it was, was very visible. Whereas what we're talking about and the use of the mobile phones, the cyber surveillance, as we call it, is uh, invisible. There's no sound, no sign at all that you're being attacked by mobile phone. That's the gist of one of the books. Yes, that just seemed so sort of frightening. I should mention first that you begin your review with your own memory of the moment that The Guardian decided to publish Edward Snowden's leaks from the US National Security Agency, which was a defining moment for him and for the paper, wasn't it? And it sort of shifted the territory. It did, really, because although we knew that um, GCHQ and the National Security Agency of the US, these large intelligence organisations can tap your phones along the line, as it were. When you're calling someone abroad, they can pick up fibre optic cables or listen to you via the satellites or through the ether, as it were. But here, Alan Rushman, who was then the editor, called me into his office and he suddenly said, put your phone away, out of the office. And I thought this was a bit sort of neurotic and paranoid. But now we subsequently know through the one of the books um, I reviewed called Pegasus about uh, a super sophisticated cyber surveillance where your mobile phone can be attacked, if you like. And it can be used as a microphone, and without you knowing, it can be used as a microphone. They can people can pick up all the uh, information you have on your phone, your list of contacts, and so on, without you knowing. And that's what uh, I subsequently learned, partly through Edward Snowden, but uh, confirmed through this uh, very good book um, called Pegasus, which is the cyber security spyware, really, of this Israeli company called NSO. Yes, this is the first book that you've reviewed by Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. And it's essentially a work of really close investigative journalism, isn't it? Can you explain who they are and the organisation that they founded and head up? Yeah, Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud are French. They are editors and a founder of this um, consortium of journalists called Forbidden Stories, really. And the journalists uh, involved in it and their mission, really, is to publish uh, information that governments and don't want journalists of those countries see the light of day, i.e. they are this outfit called Forbidden Stories. Their mission, as I say, is to help those journalists, mainly in autocracies, i.e. in repressive governments, who um, don't want uh, stories about corruption and, and so on to be published. So these are the two people who were recipients, because the Forbidden Stories outfit, the recipients of an enormous leak by someone who we do not know about what this company, this Israeli company called NSO, is doing, or rather one its spyware called Pegasus, is doing um, to attack those people, those journalists, who those governments, mainly in, as I say, in autocracies around the world, do not want uh, to write the stories. So that is what they got, this outfit called Forbidden Stories, were leaked an enormous uh, amount of data suggesting that 50,000 mobile phones had been selected as potential targets by clients, by people who had bought this Pegasus spyware. 
Do we know, Richard, in any way how it works or is that kind of a closed book? Do we know technologically how it works? We don't know how it works because there's no sign at all. And uh, what they call zero click. You don't have to click on, uh, often when you get uh, attacked, uh, text would come up and you would click on that and that would set the spyware going, the malware going, if you like, or you open up a message or or an email. But here, you don't even have to do that to be infected, for your mobile to be infected. The only reason, well, because of the leak, that's the reason why people had ideas of whose phone or who are the potential targets. There's 50,000 mobile phone numbers were leaked to this outfit called Forbidden Stories, whose authors write the book called Pegasus. Through the help of cyber sort of geeks, really, computer wizards they had, they discovered through a very, very long process whether those targets, or potential targets, phones were confirmed that they were targeted and, and how they were successfully targeted by a very complicated, which I, I don't quite understand myself, actually, but it was very convincing mm-hmm. uh, way of intersecting and looking at dissecting and bisecting and actually these telephones. And, and there, are, there are hidden codes, signs of code numbers they, they discovered. Very few people can do that. They only knew that because of this leak of the documents. It took a very, very long time, months and months, before these computer wizards could discover potential targets and, in some cases, actual targets of Pegasus. Yes, they were. I mean, it's been implicated in the assassination of Daphne Carano de Galizia in Malta in 2017. And you also write about the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, too. So, I mean, these are very, you know, major targets, major outcomes, assassinations, deaths. There are quite a few targets of people I'd, I'd never heard of, actually, as well, in, in various countries, like um, including Hungary, Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan, Mexico, Morocco, all sorts of targets, including Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and his uh, cabinet members. But the most, if you like, uh, controversial one, would have been the most controversial one, is did they attack the phones of uh, the Saudis of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi? Now, it is not clear whether they attacked him before Khashoggi was assassinated in, uh, when was it, October 2018. But there was evidence that his fiance Hatis Kisengi's phone, was successfully compromised, as the book Pegasus says, as was that of Khashoggi's former Egyptian wife. Now, the company, NSO, says they don't sell this Pegasus uh, spyware. We don't know what our clients, the people who buy the system, does with it and who they target. But then it it also said, according to the authors of of this book, Pegasus, that uh, the company insisted that it did not have what they describe as insight into the specific intelligence activities of its customers. So on the one hand, the company, embarrassed by the allegation that Khashoggi, or the people around Khashoggi, were targeted by Pegasus. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, they said. On the other hand, they say, we don't know what our clients are up to. So there are mm. question marks there. Anyway, it is a very powerful system, this Pegasus spyware system, which, uh, and the Americans were so concerned about it, they blacklisted the company. I was just wondering that, because that was another, one of the many very striking things in your piece, is that the company, they took a lot of heat when this all came out, but they're still operating. Is Pegasus still operating? It still is operating, and uh, this company, NSO, was uh, was shaken very much by the uh, controversy around it. And when, when the authors of the book show how, in a wonderful operation, very discreet operation, in uh, 2022, 
last year. When was it? I can't remember when it was exactly. They burst upon the um, 2021, actually, in the front pages across the world. Many newspapers were in on this, uh, this operation. And um, the company was very much on the defensive, of course. The Americans, a few months later, said the commercial departments of the US government imposed a blacklist of the company, said no, no American company can, should use Pegasus. But it is still used around the world. And I think a lot of, uh, according to the latest information, I, a lot of the um, managers and the and executives in the company are based now in Britain. And the trouble is that it's very, very difficult. Well, it is almost impossible, certainly for ordinary clients and customers and individuals, to, it's impossible for them to find out if, if their phones, their devices have been attacked. Mm. So you've got to be more and more careful, of course. And But as I've said in many, many years following this thing, the technology develops very, very fast. Surveillance technology, whether it's on the part of, say, big intelligence, state intelligence agencies like GCQ or individual companies. And the Israelis are very, very good at this, very, very good at uh, inventing and producing very sophisticated spyware. I mean, I guess private companies have always created the kind of technologies and infrastructure, I suppose, of espionage. But this is something new. And when there are private companies, you know, selling technologies to, as you say, to countries and regimes, often repressive regimes, that's a very, very difficult area for anybody to sort of legislate and fight back against, isn't it? Well, it is. And also for state agencies. I mean, for example, um, and Edward Snowden, the, the whistleblower from the American National Security Agency, proves, I think, what intelligence officers tell me privately and admit that law cannot keep up with the advances in technology. For example, there are lots of different laws trying to protect individuals from uh, cyber attacks and spyware and discover who's attacking them and so on. And you can draw up statutes saying these companies should not do that or individuals should be protected and their privacy and so on should be protected. But there's no way of, of showing that these measures in law are effective or not because technology advances so much and they're so sophisticated. In the end of the day, it's up to the ethos, the trust of the people working for those companies. NSA, this Israeli company which invented Pegasus, says we are saving lives all the time because our clients are... Um, are using the spyware to target uh, criminals and terrorists and pedophiles and so on and so forth. Well, that may be fine, but it's also attacking independent journalists and any individual, for that matter, without us knowing. I mean, that, that's the key question. Law, statutes, controls can really never keep up with the advances in this sort of surveillance technology. The second book you've reviewed, Striking Back, seems to suggest that what's happening now has created a situation that is neither war nor peace, but what Lucas Kello, the author, calls unpeace. And what's striking, as you've said, is that the traditional methods of dealing with these kind of attacks on privacy, it seems sort of beyond international law as it's currently framed. Yes, he's basically talking, uh, this guy Kello, who is a professor at uh, Oxford University, really is talking about not attacks by individual companies spyware, but uh, individual governments attacking journalists and so on but uh, state, interstate, really, uh, cyber attacks, i.e. Russia and China, but also North Korea, of course, attacking the Western states and their institutions and their infrastructure by cyber attacks. So this guy, Kello, is talking about state-on-state attacks in the cyber sphere, if you like. 
And that, of course, has implications for the idea of sovereign countries and borders. And I mean, he had some interesting material about Estonia, doesn't he? And the, the idea of data embassies, which is not a phrase I've come across before, but which I learned from reading your piece. Well, Estonia was the target of a pretty, uh, some years ago, very, very strong attack by the Russians, or assumed to be Russians. Russia's almost admitted, I think, Putin's Russia. Estonia then set up this special institute that leading the attack, the cyber defense, if you like, to defend themselves against cyber attacks against Russia and other countries. So an Estonian officials had this idea of um, combating cyber attacks by what they call uh, preserving all the data which could be attacked by the Russians, for example, all their security data, all the data on their individuals, on the state apparatus and so on, should be set up in a kind of cloud, really, but somewhere else. So, for example, Russia could attack all the, physically attack all the state agencies in Estonia, their communication centers and all that kind of stuff. But they'll be backed up by what they call data embassies, which will be in the, somewhere else in the cyberspace or indeed physically almost another country so we would have a, a sort of separate kind of warehouse if you like for all the important Estonian information and data about their population and and other national secrets and so on which could be set up in another country say for sake of argument Britain and one of the Estonian officials goes so far as saying and this guy Kello the author talks about that land being an old-fashioned idea really <laughs> as I say I think in the in my review, I think, tell that to the Ukrainians. Of course, mm -hmm. the interesting thing is because talking about all this sophisticated cyber warfare, digital, you know, invisible attacks, if you like, is extraordinary when at, at, the, at the moment we're seeing warfare between Russia and Ukraine, which was reminiscent of the First World War, you know, basically trench warfare, mm -hmm. which is extremely visible. And there's some sort of puzzlement, really, but why the Russians did not attack so, um, which in the way they could, Ukrainian communication systems. So but now it's not as easy as said that because the Ukrainian has basic systems and they can counter that way. And also because I think Putin's Russia, they want a very visible, visible signs of attacking Ukraine. If you like the irony of, of um, the moment we're seeing oh, this trench warfare, this, this amazingly visible, almost old fashioned attacks on Ukraine by Russia. In a way, that's what's so terrifying, isn't it? That you have, as you say, this land war that seems not like very many of the advanced systems of warfare that people have pursued. At the same time, you have the invisible war. So it's almost like war on so many different fronts that the world kind of can't adjust to it. Well, yes. And I think, you know, there won't be many more, I don't think there are many more sort of conflicts like the current one against Ukraine, but there will be more and more. I think uh, that's what um, everyone assumes. China and Russia, for example, North Korea and others attacking a lot of Western countries, of course. But then you get Israel, who are very, very advanced to cyber attacks too. For example, at Stuxnet, people remember Stuxnet, were very successful attacks some years ago against Iranian nuclear program. And that's not the first attack, the Israeli leading the attacks. Uh, Israeli assumed to be the leaders of the attacks on Iranian scientific institutions, for example, which attacks the nuclear program invisibly. And very belatedly, I think, have the West, certainly Britain, have started to gear themselves up to counter these cyber attacks. So you get now, only now, the British government, for example, is setting up a, a new, um, more aggressive attacks against 
other peoples will know to be the Russian and Chinese cyber attacks. But they were very slow in setting this up. But now GCHQ and others, Ministry of Defense, are, as I say, gearing themselves up to spot as soon as they can and, and indeed counter uh, cyber attacks. But they were very slow in, in realizing the importance of this new kind of, well, not so new now, really, kind of warfare in cyberspace. Richard, you, I mean, you've had such a distinguished and long career in reporting on defence and security issues. There's just certainly long, anyway. Yeah. So much knowledge. No, no, I am distinguished. So much knowledge, but you must at points feel that the territory is shifting so quickly that the changes that you've seen over the course of your life reporting this stuff is just changing so much. You must have seen so many of these these shifts yeah well that, that's true and 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 in and, and at this time it's quite interesting there are different themes coming up one is i think britain has been rather belatedly uh, reacting as i say to the, this new kind of warfare through cyberspace and so on the americans more, uh, more uh, a bit more quickly i think and the other thing is how difficult it is to get some kind of discussion and if you like debate about how effective to counter and make these people uh, responsible for cyber attacks more accountable, to pinpoint, to target them, to actually get proof that they're responsible, whether it's, mm. it's an individual Russian cyber uh, outfit or, or the Russian government and, and states. It's very, very difficult to do it. And the other sort of theme, really, is, I thought, uh, throughout my, as you say, long career, is how it's difficult to wind Parliament MPs up. Mm. Maybe it's too difficult mm. and complicated for them. And um, uh, And the other sort of lesson, really, is that as I've always, uh, and as I think I said before, that in the end of the day, it's a question of trust. You've got to trust the, the people uh, in charge of, say, you know, GCHQ or uh, other state organizations, or indeed the clients of a company like this, uh, or the Israeli company NSO, we write about, is to is a trust in the workforce, the workforce, the ethos of the workforce um, is a better, more relevant more maybe the only in a, in a sense counter to make sure without sounding so paranoid myself again against um technology attacking what well, like you know anyone's privacy really including innocent individuals and, and that's the other thing about for example if, if you start criticizing or trying to work out as a journalist how best to protect genuine individual you know, privacy of innocent people from these cyber attacks and so on when governments and the companies making this spyware say ah we're on the side we're always on the side of the good the increase in corruption for example pedophilia uh, terrorism and so on that is their argument which is a good argument but it, it cannot end there because they attack more people than, than, than that they, they attack innocent people they can attack innocent people for their own political if you like on, on the reasons and attacking freedom of the, uh, of the press and so on when you say um it's the ethos of the workforce is that because when there have been problems real significant problems it's been from people within the organization every time that the whistleblowers who who've thought this is this is not okay and i have to tell someone and and that's where that's how it gets out well the, the um the book pegasus uh, one of the books we review say um by these two french journalists um they could only start if you like that great investigation because of this massive leak a leak by an unidentified whistleblower they would not know who to look for and what to look for if they hadn't been triggered by, by this leak. 
equally, I mean, whenever one thinks of other whistleblowers, Edward Snowden, which is to many people, is a traitor to other people. He's a, a, a tremendous whistleblower to other people in, uh, who I've known in, say, in, say state or well, GCHQ. And they, they say and they admit that, that uh, it is ultimately the, the, the workforce, the ethos of the workforce is the only sort of countering and the safeguard against uh, wrongful attacks against civil liberties as opposed to completely understandable ones against terrorists and so on. Now, that is a debate which is easy to, at one level to, to have and on the other hand to actually get anywhere because as I say you, maybe the Commons would have a, the House of Commons, the Parliament would have a debate, you set up a new law or introduce a new law but that law won't go far enough because there are other ways technology can get around these laws. So it, it is a it's a it is a running it is a running dispute, a running argument, and um, which I don't think has got the attention really it deserves. Because people sort of give up, say it's all ter terribly complicated. I mean, it, it is important, and actually, uh, sooner or later, someone in, the, in in a workforce, if things were getting really out of hand, someone from a sort of authoritarian government or uh, out there, or if someone uh, is doing naughty things in GCHQ or another British intelligence agency, sooner or later someone will cough. And I think that one <laughs> have to hope that that happens. And generally they kind of, without getting paranoid, that's a difficulty of getting paranoid. If you can't prove that your phone, for example, if you're, if you're being attacked because there's, there's no sign it is, how do you actually get the evidence to defend yourself or, or, to, or to blow the whistle? It's very, very difficult. But you, as you say, you, you always need the humans, despite the immense uh, technological advances, you do always need the humans. Richard, that was just so fascinating and such an interesting piece. Thank you ever so much for coming to talk to us about it today. Well, thank you. have time for this week our thanks go to lucasta miller and richard norton taylor and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye <laughs>